The Holy Gospel according to Mark, the seventh chapter. Jesus set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know that he was there. Yet he could not escape notice, but a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. She begged him. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home, found the child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went by way of Sidon toward the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. He took him aside in private, away from the crowd, and put his fingers into his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephrathah, that is, be opened. And immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Then Jesus ordered them to tell no one, but the more he ordered them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They were astounded by beyond measure, saying, He has done everything well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. This morning we read the letter of Paul to Philemon. It's short, it's only a chapter, but it addresses two issues that are current in the church today. Slavery and what it means to be members of the body of Christ. Reckoning with the legacy of slavery has been much of the news in the, for the past several years. Since Americans have so little knowledge of history and the past in general, we keep hoping for some quick fix, that we can get past the history of race in the United States by ignoring it. But undoing over 200 years of slavery and discrimination will take at least that long. We have a long way to go, and we have much to learn by listening to voices long suppressed. We do not know exactly where or when the letter of Paul to Philemon was written. From references elsewhere, we assume that Philemon lived in Colossae. We can gather from this letter that he was a person of substance. His house was large enough to have a guest room and to accommodate the meetings of the church in his town. The story seems to be that Philemon owes his conversion to Paul and is thus indebted to him. Onesimus was Philemon's slave, but ran away, incurring a debt to his master. Onesimus was subsequently converted by an imprisoned Paul, who sent him back to Philemon along with this letter, guaranteeing repayment of Onesimus' debt, but calling in Philemon's debt to Paul. 
The letter was addressed not just to Philemon, but also to the church that met at his house. In other words, it was designed to put pressure on Philemon to do what Paul asked, to accept his former slave as an equal, as a sibling in Christ. Unlike Colossians and Ephesians, which seem to accept the reality of slavery and are believed to have been written by disciples of Paul, Paul in this letter does not accept the reality of slavery in his day. He asks Philemon to receive Onesimus as if he were Paul himself, as an equal, not a subordinate. Paul questions the idea that a brother in Christ can be a master or a slave to another sibling of the body of Christ. Although Paul has no legal right to demand that Philemon free Onesimus, he seems to expect it because he sees the master-slave relationship as a problem for the church. Paul sees that Philemon's failure to receive Onesimus as a brother in Christ would threaten the very nature of what it means to be a brother or sister in Christ, the child of God that we become in baptism. Slavery was a fact in biblical times, but in the Old Testament, only foreigners could be enslaved by Hebrews. And the reason was that the Hebrews were to remember that they had been slaves in Egypt and they were never to be slaves again. It was a fact in Roman times, but something the early Christians resisted because all were the same, brothers and sisters in Christ through baptism. Paul was not writing so much against slavery as much as for a vision of the church as the body of Christ, a community of equals. Although we were Lutheran, as a child, I spent a lot of time at the funerals of my father's Mennonite relatives, singing hymns a cappella in four-part harmony. Just to give you a sense of how frequent this was, my father was the oldest of 12, and his father was one of nine. And most of these people had, you know, five, six, seven, eight children, so there were a lot of funerals. I can still feel what it was like. We would be packed into the pews near the front of the church, aunts and uncles all around us. The song leader would get up and announce a hymn. We'd open our hymnals, he'd give the pitches, and off we would go. We usually sang four or five hymns that way at any funeral. I sang alto at that point, and I would be surrounded by sound, my uncle singing bass or tenor, my aunts soprano or alto, no one standing out, no solos, but harmonizing together to lift our praises to God and lift one another up in this moment. In the act of singing in harmony and without accompaniment, we embodied belonging to one another. We were the body of Christ in that act that drew everyone in the room together. With that, I guess, as a background, my whole ministry has been a struggle to enhance community and to fight against creeping individualism in the church. It often, in my 47 years as a pastor, has felt like a losing battle. It's affected all religious groups. Even the Mennonites do not sing hymns a cappella in four-part harmony much anymore. 
they do when I go to the funeral because I warn my cousins that we have to do this. And so we do because our family is still able to do this. Since I started at Upper Dublin a few months ago, I've heard a repeated mantra that I find disturbing. We are too corporate. I've thought a lot about what this means. We should be disorganized. Somehow or other, that's more churchly. I don't think so. What is behind this mantra is resistance to accountability. I'm only hearing it from people who've been here a long time. They know each other and they trust each other, and that's fine. But this resistance to formal accountability excludes newer and younger people from leadership, from the possibility of leadership, because it creates an insider-outsider dynamic that stymies or prevents newer and younger people from taking leadership positions, or if they take them, it undermines them. It's killed lots of congregations. If you'd like a list, I could provide it. Fortunately, it's not prevented the transition to newer and younger leadership at Upper Dublin. The first definition of the word corporate in the Oxford English Dictionary, you know that thick dictionary you have to use a magnifying glass to read? The first uh, definition is to form a body. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes that we are the body of Christ and individually members of it. If anything, we want to be more corporate, functioning more like a body and less like a collection of individuals. Having served here 10 years ago, I'm aware of how the structures of accountability have atrophied. They have to be restored if we are to be the body of Christ in this community and if we want younger generations to be involved. The council's been working on this for some time, and it has not been easy for them. But it is their responsibility to guide this congregation. They're called to be leaders who do what is best to enhance the witness of Upper Dublin to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes they have to make unpopular decisions for the welfare of the whole congregation, and all of us need to put the best construction on these difficult decisions made by congregational leaders. Something that I've had to repeat over and over again and throughout my 47 years of ministry is the well-being of the congregation as a whole, whole always takes precedence over the well-being of any individual. The well-being of the congregation as a whole always takes precedence over the well-being of any individual. In our individualistic culture, this idea does not sit well, but it is essential to us being and acting as the body of Christ. It is part of how the church has to be different from the society in which we operate. Paul's words that you are the body of Christ and individually members of it, and his embodying those words in his expectation for the changed relationship of Philemon and Onesimus calls us to put the community of faith as a whole first and not individual relationships. There will be more unpopular and 
certainly difficult decisions made because our culture is changing so dramatically and so quickly. And if anything, the pandemic has put us on banana peels and we are just skidding into the future, often without a real sense of what it's going to be like and what it's going to mean. This, it's sometimes uncomfortable for my generation that's been in charge for so long. You know, there were so many of us, we could just overwhelm any organization. The younger generations aren't as interested in organizations, and getting them involved is not at all the same. We, we have to be willing to step aside and be grateful that there are younger people to take our places. They're going to see things differently, and they're going to do ministry differently. We need to treat them and each other with respect and disagree respectfully when necessary. We are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We are joined to one another through our baptism into Jesus' death and resurrection. Paul wants Philemon to see Onesimus as the same as himself, as a member of the body of Christ, a sibling in Christ. We are to see each other through the eyes of Christ as common followers of Jesus, companions on the way of the cross. When we share the peace during worship, it is Christ's peace, not ours as individuals, that we share. May his peace infuse us and guide us to be his people, the body of Christ in Upper Dublin and beyond. Amen. <laughs>